DamascusCitizens.org. WJFF, Jeffersonville. You're listening to Radio Catskill. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report that highlights a solitary bright star. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose recites the work of local poets on the theme of promises. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear more about mushrooms. Stephanie Phillips continues her visit in Ellenville, New York, to speak with Ted and Ann Hall, who grow mushrooms. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. President Biden meets with his national security team today after the U.S. military said it's killed a key ISIS-K militant in Afghanistan. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports the Pentagon says the target was killed in a drone strike in eastern Afghanistan. U.S. Central Command says the drone strike killed someone described as a planner for the branch of the Islamic State movement that operates in Afghanistan. The group claimed responsibility for the suicide bombing on Thursday that killed 13 U.S. troops and as many as 170 Afghans and others who were crowded outside the Kabul airport. President Biden vowed to retaliate. The CENTCOM spokesman said there were no civilian casualties from the operation, which he said took place in the province of Nangarhar, bordering Pakistan. NPR could not independently confirm the strike or who was killed. In Kabul, the U.S. Embassy is once again warning U.S. citizens to stay away from the airport due to specific security threats. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Louisiana is facing a double blow. Hurricane Ida is in the Gulf of Mexico and expected to strengthen to a Category 4 storm when it makes landfall on the Gulf Coast tomorrow. As people in the region make contingency plans today, Louisiana Health Officer Dr. Joseph Cantor warns they need to keep in mind that the coronavirus is also hitting the state hard. The level of COVID out there, the amount of transmission out there, your risk your chances of being exposed to and infected with COVID remain higher today than they have been at any point in the pandemic leading up to the beginning of this fourth surge. In New Orleans, the mayor has ordered a mandatory evacuation for areas outside the city's levee system. Tomorrow is the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina's landfall, which devastated the region when it hit as a Category 3 storm. Wildfires continue to rage in California. Scott Rod of member station CAP Radio reports more than one and a half million acres have burned so far this year amid severe drought. Fire crews are currently battling over a dozen large wildfires in California. The Dixie Fire has grown to the second largest fire in state history and continues to threaten communities in Plumas and Lassen counties. The Caldor Fire has blanketed the Lake Tahoe region with hazardous levels of smoke, leaving popular resort areas deserted. The federal government has closed nine national forests in the state through Labor Day due to extreme fire risks. Last year, California saw a record 4.3 million acres burned. 
The state is on pace to match that number this year. For NPR News, I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Christine San Jose recites on the theme of promises along the poet's row. In her segment, Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with Ted and Ann Hall, who grow mushrooms. But first, we have Keith Hubbard and Star Talk and a solitary bright star. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced farm and country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Ever notice how some regions of the sky are teeming with stars, while other regions seem to be virtually devoid of stars? A glance in the southeastern sky will reveal a patch of sky with one lone, bright star. This solitary star is Fomalhaut, the brightest star in the constellation Pisces Austrinus. Fomalhaut is visible from all over the Earth and is known by many as the Lonely Star. The area around Fomalhaut is not empty of stars, but the stars in the area are very faint, so it appears that Fomalhaut is the sole star in the area. To find the Lonely Star, look to the southeast just above the horizon after 10.30 p.m. Look for a bright white star in an otherwise empty part of the sky. Jupiter and Saturn will also be in the southeastern sky, but they will be much higher in the sky. Fomalhaut reaches its highest point in the sky due south around 1.30 a.m. and sets around 5.30 a.m. in the southwest. In 2008, it became the interest of astronomers when it became the first star with an exosolar planet to be imaged in visible wavelengths. The planet, Fomalhaut b, is three times the mass of Jupiter and orbits within a dusty debris ring around Fomalhaut. Look to the southeast this week to see the solitary star Fomalhaut. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Along the poet's row, Maya, um, Maya Mary Hebert, take us to a place maybe we've all been. You'll see. August Plenty. Tonight, when I was walking home, I felt the hand of paradise come, disguised as August wind, 
so robust, I stopped and slid my back against the London plane tree to see what was riding toward me there. On paradise wind, I could smell traces in her grey curls of sea, the dry, salty smell of skin embracing skin, of sand and sun-dried cloth, sweet grass and bread and whiffs of promises I could not name. And darkness came, and still I did not stir. I let myself be held. I let myself be held by promises I could not name. What are they, these promises? Here's what Catherine, age ten, shared with us by highlights, has to say, forever. About a million years from now, when our world is gone, all the promises that are forever will echo through the air. They are forever, everlasting. Even when the world and universe are demolished, they will echo with love and hope and will never die. Do you know, I wonder if they're not perhaps promises we made to ourselves. Here is Frank from Highlights. And Frank says, when I grow up, I got to do a lot of things. I want to hurry up and grow up. I want to be a teacher and teach the children of the world. I want to be an artist and paint the beauty of the world. I want to be a doctor and treat the people of the world. I want to be a cook and cook the food of the world. I want to be a newsman and report the news of the world. I want to be myself, and there's nobody in the world like me. Are those promises that come on the wind the promises we made to ourselves? Do they come to remind us that it's never too late? Along the Poets Row, this has been Christine San Jose for Farm and Country. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I've come to Ellenville this morning to speak with Ted Hall and his wife, Anne Peru Hall. You may have seen this couple at farmer's markets displaying their incredible organic mushrooms. I asked them about their company, Mushrooms NYC. Can we go back a step and can you tell us exactly what mushrooms are and how they grow and how they multiply? Man, I'm amazed by mushrooms. It's such a funny question because even in the everyday markets, I don't really know how to dis- it's They're their own kingdom, quote unquote. This is what I understand, that they're not plants. <laughs> no chlorophyll in mushrooms. Oh, no, yeah. This is my best understanding as a behavioral economist. I'm not super strong in biology, but apparently the animal kingdom branched off of fungi a long time ago. So we're common, and I guess that's partly why there's such a meaty quality to mushrooms. That's my best guess. There's, we have a lot in common with mushrooms, as, an, as like our bodies being animal, animal-like. But they're actually a fungus, right? Yeah, so mushrooms are all funguses. It's an incredibly diverse kingdom. For every species of plant, there are ten species of mushroom. 
and there's a lot of relationships between plants and mushrooms and animals and it's in this intermedium between so many different organisms when you say relations you mean they one depends on the other yeah yeah maybe not so much dependency but there's cooperation and reciprocity and mutual assistance yeah there's a lot of examples of that of course the fungi are like decomposers too so they're a bit of like a threshold they can determine where in an ecosystem either a, a tree or a plant is ready to be more or less like distributed or it's sick and it just we've got to clear out more space for the next generation so they digest and are very adaptive so like within one generation they can adapt there's probably way more than 10 species per plant because they adapt very quickly even if you have one species of mushroom introduced to a mountain they will speciate based on the exposure of the sun basically specialize for every side of the mountain within two years or something I see that example of the shiitakes that tend to grow in oak. Yes, there are pieces of dead oak that it, the shiitakes grow in, and, but you have something else that you're growing your shiitakes in. It's, it's milled hardwood, so they're, I'm pretty sure as I recall, because we have so many varieties, but the shiitake should be milled oak and other spent grains, so they're all certified sources. We're hoping to basically take on the production of the blocks. It's a huge amount of capital investment to be able to produce these reliably. It's a lot of equipment. You're talking about the blocks as the substrate that the mushrooms grow on. Yeah, yeah. I like thinking of them as like a root stock. So it's basically just pure root with the optimal fuel, which is these hardwoods or specific species like beech love to grow on beech trees and poplar likes to grow on poplars and shiitake does like growing on oaks as well as hen of the woods likes to grow on oaks so you can optimize basically the rootstock but there's a milling process and a pasteurization process as well as a propagation process they all have to be really fine-tuned and it takes a lot of really well-built infrastructure to do that reliably so we get all of our substrate from the main leaders in the country, or at least a region of that in Pennsylvania. When your logs are right. arrive, are they sterile? They don't have any mushroom? And where do you get the spores to start those? Well, these, they're already fully inoculated. So they come with the live mushroom spores in them. Yeah, and they've been through the whole process. Those multi-generational farms in Pennsylvania have that process really well-tuned, a big chunk of the work is handled by them because they have that infrastructure. We really want to develop that in New York State. It would provide so much food security for our region if we had some closer production of something like this. We've been learning how to optimize the fruiting. If you have grapes or like uh, peppers or apples, if you have a really good rooting operation, you still need a good fruiting operation for any of that to make sense. So we've been figuring out the fruiting since Pennsylvania has the rooting covered. We'd like to do the rooting actually in New York. We'd like the from the spore all the way to the fruit. The rooting is a part of the mushroom that you don't see, right? It's inside the log or whatever the mushroom is growing on. And when you say fruiting, you're talking about the mushroom, what we would call a mushroom itself. Yeah, so the mushroom is basically the fruit of the whole 
organism. And the root of the mycelia, you actually can see it pretty quickly if you have to investigate a little. But almost anywhere you have moisture and carbon-rich material, like even if it's cardboard, you'll see these little white kind of networks spread. They, they're like strings that you're looking at. Mm-hmm, yeah. Since there's spores all over, we're probably breathing in countless spores right now just from the outdoors. So when there's optimal conditions, these spores will begin to propagate. They'll they'll find a place to take root and begin to spread and try to find another common spore to mate with, basically, and start a full-fledged fruiting process. Yeah, so we see the fruit and that's what we eat and it's super full of incredible nutrients because it's pulling from a very large, usually a pretty large network that's connected to almost an, a large forest of probably other mushrooms and roots. So when you see a mushroom on a tree, a tree trunk or a log or in a pile of compost, if you dig in, you'll see these mycelia underneath, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can. If you pull gently, you'll be able to see a, the beginning of it. They're quite fragile. They need undisturbed soil, for sure, or to be connected directly to the tree. If they do get disturbed, they'll lose a lot of the production. So even with these grow kits, they need to be, if they fall or something like that, if they get a crack in it, they won't grow as well. They might get half the production. And it's sort of part of that topsoil building ethos, just kind of helping, allowing it to not get too disturbed. So are all mushrooms organic? No. Yeah, ours are, would meet the criteria. You said they wouldn't? They would. They would, yeah. There's a very expensive process and time-consuming process that we haven't even entertained because (laughs) we probably have to grow 10 times bigger before we start looking at that price tag of that certification. To make mushrooms organic, you need a lot more labor-intensive care. Because of the substrates, I guess, have to be certified as organic, so your oak tree has to be not sprayed, not that it would be, but I understand that the government, the U.S. government, has these very stringent rules that may not seem so applicable if you're growing mushrooms. I'd say that new growers could meet those standards. It's more the industrial operations that could have a harder time. It's just that for a small grower to pay for that standard, that's a whole nother ball game, which makes it very exclusive. It's really not, it's not right. I even know some of the founders, like the originators of the organic certification with NOFA, and they're really upset with how it's become this. And it's also not a very honest certification. So even though some of these are certified organic, I'd like to know every element. Because this is true with especially salad greens, even with berries at a supermarket. There's so many workarounds with this stamp that there's some produce as well as mushrooms that even if it's certified organic, I still, it's better than not. But ultimately, we need a new standard that's a little more direct. We really would hope to do that because it's hard to even describe it. But the main thing that is harder to get organic, I guess, these other fuels, these are things like there are legume hulls and and other grains. So the, the wood is not very hard to get organic. 
because there's not a whole lot of sprayed tree crops, thankfully. But the mushrooms, they need calories. They need more fuel than just pure dead wood. They need things like, you can do like barley or coffee grain, grounds. There's a whole bunch of different amendments to these kits that are harder to certify organic. But they wouldn't be hard to source organically as small producers. But we would like to, especially, yeah, we really want to get every link in the chain. I trust the label of uh, the certification of these organic kits, but I'd like to bump the standard up and be able to produce them with other New Yorkers in, in the hopefully not too distant future. Hopefully in like a year or two, maybe we can figure out a good township that would like a low impact space that can actually be a source of these kinds of kits because you can grow a fair amount at home with these kinds of grow bags. How long does it take after you, you said inoculate is the term you use, after you inoculate a substrate with spores, how long does it take before you get actual mushrooms that you can eat? From the spore on, it could be, or it could be about two months. So it's very rapid, but the early stages are very, very, man, I, the delicate's not the word, but it's very tricky. fragile. Tricky. Yeah. yeah, it's very tricky. You need lab, basically a, a biology lab level of clean rooms and processes to make sure that no other spores could come into the process. For instance, like us actually having a full-fledged inoculation and grow kit operation would help us with a recent situation that just occurred where with our source of our kits actually had a contamination which made it so over a thousand of their grow kits just didn't produce anything. And these contaminations, they rarely come to the point that it's anything visible. And if it is, the main problem is that you just don't get a lot of production because there's too much competition within the rootstock. That's all that really happens. I can always tell what is what. You never really get like a poisonous contaminant. You just get something that will knock out the efficacy of the rootstock. It's for stability of, and also diversity, being able to have kind of a, a hedge on the capital of mushroom growing in the United States, which is in Pennsylvania, if we had something here, then a situation like that would be less disruptive. It was quite disruptive, actually. We lost a fair amount of our production. And then our, a favorite that we can only really get in Pennsylvania because they're so advanced is the Hen of the Woods. We've been out of Hen of the Woods also. That early stage, you can't even really tell if you have a problem until it's too late. And then you lose a lot. So really what you've got there is a rich culture medium that a lot of things would like to grow in. And so you have to really watch out for contamination with some other kind of a fungus. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So what kind of mushrooms could a person grow at home that would be amenable and not too hard to work with? Mm-hmm. We usually recommend several. There's the blue oyster which can grow a huge amount with not a whole lot of care. And it's, it's a pretty forgiving variety. It was used during World War I and World War II for food security and the Depression. So it's a very stable, and some describe it as like aggressive mushroom variety. And one of its relatives, the yellow oyster, is also very forgiving and easy to grow. It requires a little less space 
they only really require about a foot by foot, like a foot, a cubic foot. I assume um, you have to keep them moist. In this region, we're pretty lucky. A little bit of focused attention, which is just like a spray bottle in the morning and at night, that would be a bare minimum. Unless you have like a nice rainy day, like you don't really need to worry about it. If you have humidity about 70%, they'll keep growing. So we get a little break. Last night we got a nice rain. Right. <laughs> so our day is like a little, an hour longer because of that rain. Yeah, the other one is the lion's mane, which I think is probably the healthiest mushroom I know. Besides this other, it's called horse mushroom, also known as matsutake, and which grows in our region, which is a super prized, celebrated Japanese mushroom. These, The lion's mane in that are really good for entire whole cell function. They have this nutrient that allows the pumps to, to actually operate, so all of the basic cell function requires... A molecule that's really found only in topsoil building agriculturally produced foods so the roots of like no-till farming like carrots and greens will have high quantities of this which is hard to come by and it's it's kind of key for all body function the lion's mane has lots of that and it's very easy to grow and it's really good for the nervous system it helps the body build neurons too which there's countless studies about its its properties of that. I find it's probably one of the easiest to grow. Could you list again for our mm -hmm. listeners Yeah. what mushrooms do you think would be practical for somebody to try to grow at home? Yeah, yeah, the blue oyster, yellow oyster, and the lion's mane. And I would recommend the shiitake, but it takes a little extra focus. And once you get it, the shiitake is, is a nice, stable, affordable, basic to grow consistently. It's just not quite as straightforward. There's a couple stumbling blocks, and then once you get over those, it's very simple. So given everything that you said, why was there such an uproar when a mushroom growing plant was proposed in the area in, oh, I think it was in Wurzboro. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to understand that, speaking with other neighbors who were familiar with it, and I think that their approach was more cookie-cutter industrial than what we're looking to do ourselves, but that it also is very water-intensive, and I believe that there was a concern, which is great that there's any interest in that, that there's a, a care for the downstream effects of that operation. So industrial operations, because they're not growing in tune, it makes sense for for all kinds of other processes, but for agriculture, industrial models almost instantly turn into a source of environmental toxification. That's at least what I understood, is that their operation was going to demand a lot of water. That's something to look out for. Me coming from the Southwest, we're very sparing, even though it sounds insane to be sparing with water in New York, but we never know what it's going to be like 10 years, 20 years from now. So we want to make an operation that's very frugal, maybe only uses water that's landing on. That's what we're doing now, basically. We're using very little of anything and geared towards rainwater. Our whole operation in Long Island is basically all rainwater. So I think that was it. It's better to slowly scale an operation like with engagement from instead of to segregate it from the, the impacts because they can be incredibly useful. The, the downstream effects can be all benefits. So they can actually clean water if it's done right, but an industrial operation would pollute water. Right. 
It's a little too much of something good, I think. Yeah. All at once. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell the listeners your website so they can go and look at pictures of your pretty mushrooms? Sure, yeah. Our website is just mushrooms.nyc. It's .nyc? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, mushrooms.nyc. So now you know where to find interesting mushrooms around here. I've been speaking with organic mushroom growers Ted Hall and his wife, Anna Peru Hall. If you have ideas for other topics that I might cover on Now You Know, email Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest Ted Hall and Ann Paru Hall speaking to us on the subject of growing mushrooms. This has been your host Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org If you hear good music, you're listening to Radio Catskill. Your weekend can't even begin until Clyde Alvin Yates III sets it off Saturday night at 7. At 9, an hour of global sounds from the African diaspora on Afropop. Then at 10, Selector, Starkey, and DJ 